So we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture passages today. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible. They will not be on the screen. They're in the Bible app if you have the Version Bible app. Um, we're going to begin with Philippians chapter 3. So that's where we'll begin. We'll be reading Philippians 3, about verse 17, in just a few moments. But again, if you have the Bible app, um, you can just click the little menu there, look for a live event that's near you, and you will be flooded with a lot of text and a lot of scripture as well. I think it might prove useful to you. I want to ask you a question, and, uh, just to think about a question. Are you looking forward to heaven? Are you looking forward to heaven? Now, here, here's what I get. I get, yeah, from some people. Other people, I kind of get, I'm not going to answer that question because I'm not sure why. I can remember, uh, I can remember growing up that if a teacher, Sunday school teacher, would say, won't heaven be great? I would think to myself, I don't know, man. Uh, I kind of like having a motorcycle, a dirt bike, and I kind of like my dog and my friends. I like playing. And I guess maybe when you're a kid, life is heaven on earth to some degree. But at this point in my life, I'm really looking forward to heaven. And it's not because I'm getting older necessarily, and it certainly is not because I dislike this life, but rather it's because I'm beginning to understand what heaven is like. And I want to kind of share that with you today. For years, I have kind of felt that heaven is something that is often unappreciated, or underappreciated, I should say, in Christian circles. And I'm not sure why. It might be because of our short-sightedness, like we're not really thinking about that kind of future well. Or maybe we have this inability to delay gratification. I have that. Like, I don't want it now. I want it right now. I'm thinking about having good stuff in heaven. That's kind of a stretch for me. But in any case, I feel like sometimes Christians see heaven as just not that big a deal, almost as a consolation prize. Let me tell you what I'm thinking about. Imagine that you're you're talking about the death of a faithful follower of Jesus. It's someone who served God, loved God, and they, they've just died, and, and they suffered before they died. And, and so you're together with, with the church family or with Christian friends, and you're thinking about this, and you hear someone say, well, at least she isn't suffering anymore. You might have said that at times. I've said that at times. I still say it at times because it's perfectly true. There's no suffering in heaven. But sometimes that statement can be meant this way. At least she's not suffering anymore. I really wish she would have never suffered at all and she was still here. But hey, you can't always get what you want. I guess the fact that she's in heaven will do. So heaven becomes kind of this consolation prize, not something we really long for, not something we really think is better than this life. Now, death, generally speaking, is not something we should long for, even as Christians. Did you hear that sentence? Death is not something you should long for and pursue, even as Christians. From a negative perspective, it separates you from loved ones. The Apostle Paul says, I would rather stay and be with you and have ministry with you. And from a negative perspective, death really seriously impacts the amount of ministry you can have with people on earth. It takes it away. And if death was something that we should all long for and pursue, then why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? He surely was heaven-bound. Or why did Peter raise Tabitha or Paul raise Eutychus? The answer is because it's good to be alive. And God wants you to see the life you have here and now as a beautiful thing, as a gift from him. But just because this life you have here and now is a beautiful thing and a gift from God doesn't mean that heaven is a consolation prize. And it doesn't mean that heaven is something you should kind of settle for. And it surely doesn't mean that heaven is kind of a step down from this world. Heaven is something to look forward to, to even long for. And I hope you'll see that over and over again in the next few minutes that we're together. So your Bibles are open to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read about four or five verses here. We're going to start at verse 17. So follow along in your Bibles as I read from this. 
Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be made like his glorious body. Now, when you read that, you obviously see that there are basically two kinds of people. And the first kind is those who reject the cross and the kingdom with it. Do you see that in verse 18? Look at the phrase there. It says, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Think, what does that mean to be an enemy to the cross of Christ? Well, let's think about it logically. The cross of Christ represents the very grace of God. The cross of Christ represents the, the death of Christ on our behalf. The cross of Christ tells us that our self-efforts, our self-righteousness won't do it. The cross of Christ tells us that we need Jesus. If you're an enemy of the cross of Christ then you're probably someone who feels like that cross might not be necessary. I don't know that I need Jesus. Sometimes, uh, though, we see that phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ, in a way that it's not really intended in this text. Have you ever seen those gold and blue crosses that are kind of scattered across Appalachia? Those things are from Florida up into New England. You can see them there. The guy who put them there, his name is Bernard Cuffendaffer. Don't you wish he had that for a name? Coffin Daffer, right? Yeah, he made his business in West Virginia in the coal industry, washing coal. And along the way, he changed his heart from amassing a fortune of earthly possessions and determined that he was going to lay up treasures in heaven. And so he erected these crosses that you've probably seen set up. In fact, if you're going out of Phillipsburg towards State College, there used to be some on the left there by a church that's there. I don't know if they're still there. He put 2,000 groups of those up, more than 2,000 groups of those up. He exhausted his entire fortune, $3 million doing it. I remember when Coffin Deffer was still living, I was looking around uh, watching the news one night, and there was a short piece done on him that in Virginia somewhere, he put up these crosses, and somebody thought, that's just landscape pollution. I don't like it. I don't like to be reminded of the cross of Christ. So they were taking him to court to get it down, and the news media was covering that. And I'm sure there were people who looked at this verse of Scripture and said, That's exactly what Philippians 3 is talking about. An enemy of the cross of Christ, he's somebody who wants to take down those crosses. He's someone who wants to take the Ten Commandments out from in front of the school. He's someone who wants to take the Bible. Not necessarily. That's not what this passage is talking about. There were no monumental crosses erected in Philippi that people were trying to take down in the first century. So an enemy of the cross isn't someone who wants to censor the display of that. An enemy of the cross is someone who sees the cross as superfluous, and therefore sees their own righteousness as coming from themselves. And they say, the cross is irrelevant. And when they do that, they really glory in their shame. That's what verse 19 says. They're like, look at me, I'm so good. And anyone looking at them sees their flaws and says, your self-righteousness is like filthy rags before the throne of grace. They believe they can go on without Jesus. They're okay without him. And that's a shameful viewpoint. And their outcome, this passage says, is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. By the way, that's eternal destruction. 
That's what we speak of when we speak of hell. And if you decide never to surrender to the cross of Christ, that's your destiny. Let's not talk about those people anymore. Let's talk about people who embrace the cross of Christ. These are people who have humbled themselves, who are admitting their need for forgiveness. And when you humble yourself and admit your need for forgiveness, that's exactly what you find, forgiveness. That outcome is far different. It says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. So you know when you're trusting in Christ, you know where you live. You live in heaven and you're eagerly awaiting a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you will not experience eternal destruction. Instead, you experience eternal transformation. You're citizens of heaven transformed. Never wonder though, what does that mean? I mean, what is there to do in heaven? What do Christians have to look forward to in heaven? And let me just say this. I love the far side. Do you like Gary Larson, the far side comics? How he can make cows look so ridiculous is just beyond me. The guy's fantastic. I would show you this cartoon, but it's copyrighted, and I try to be aware of those sort of things. But there's a cartoon that Gary Larson has on the far side where he's got a guy sitting on a cloud, and he's got his his robe on there and his bare feet sticking out. He's got his angel's wing on the back, got a halo there. And the caption reads, the guy's speaking, he says, I wish I would have brought a magazine. And, and, and I think sometimes people feel like that's what heaven might be like. I'm, I wonder if I can get my Kindle in or at least my Netflix subscription because I feel like a lot of times people feel heaven is about sitting around playing harps. Now let me say this. Heaven is about worshiping God. And we will do that wholesale in heaven. And that might involve a harp. It might involve, might involve a guitar, drums, keyboard, anything but an accordion. Ah, that'll be good, won't it? But there's more than that. And I kind of want to talk to you about what to look forward to in heaven. And the first thing I want you to see is that you can look forward to a place that is customized for us. It is custom built for us. In fact, Jesus, when he's on his way to the cross, he's getting ready to leave his disciples. He knows this will be traumatic for them. And he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Did you catch that last phrase? To prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You probably heard somebody say somewhere along the way in your Christian journey, if it took God seven days to build all this, can you imagine what he's going to build in 2,000 years? I can't, but what I do know is it's custom made. It's custom made for you. He has you in mind as he's going to his father's house to prepare this place, you personally. That's something to look forward to. (laughs) Second, heaven is actually a continuation of life. It's kind of like graduation is a continuation of your life. You know, at graduation, you move from being a student to being an adult. And at death... You move from this old earth to heaven. And it's a continuation of what's going on. And as life continues after death, you'll find that it's better. I want to say this, that you will continue to have friends. You will. Somewhere along the way, people get this idea that you won't know people in heaven. And I don't know why we believe such a foolish thing. I I can tell you a dozen different places where that's not the case. Let's just talk about when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus is at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and, and Martha meets him and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus, seeming to want to comfort her, says, your brother will rise again. 
Now, if that doesn't mean when Jesus is talking about the resurrection, if that doesn't mean you're going to know him and you'll be reunited with him, that is one paltry word of comfort, Jesus. What do I care if my brother's going to rise again if I'll never see him in the resurrection? But that's not the case. In the resurrection, you will see them and you will know them. Again, think of it like graduation. You don't forget what happened in school. You remember the good times, hanging out, the pranks you played on the teachers, all that kind of stuff, right? And, and then you remember your friends, and you recognize them. If you see them down at Goodman's, or if you bump into them in a restaurant, or if you see them at church, maybe you even hang out with them. Because your life since high school has continued into this new life you have after graduation. It's that way with heaven. You'll know them. And your friendships will continue in heaven. But they'll be better. They'll be better because heaven is marked by a sense of newness. And we all love new stuff, right? New car, new pickup truck, new hunting rifle, new smartphone, new stuff. At the end of all things, in this present age, God makes everything new. He calls it a new heaven and a new earth. It is a redeemed kind of creation. Romans chapter 8 speaks of how creation longs to be transformed, to be made new, when it says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glorious children of God. That'll be a good place. That'll be a renewed place. There'll be nothing ugly in it. There'll be no pollution in it. There'll be no problems in it. It will shine with the glory of God, a new heaven, a new earth. And there'll be new people as well. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here that might bring you down. Did you happen to watch the Senate subcommittee hearings this week? How many watched that? Yeah, boy, several of you, yeah. I did. I am still depressed, right? I mean, I don't care which side you're on. You get that? I'm not making a political statement. I don't care which side you're on, what you and I watched was, was sin of humankind streaming in HD. That's what we watched. I don't care which side you're on. That's not going to happen in heaven. <laughs> Did you hear that? That's not going to be in heaven because the people will be new. They'll be made new and they'll be holy. The Bible says in Revelation 21, 27, nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful. That covers just about everything, doesn't it? but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's what that means. No sin, no temptation, no filth, no evil, no abuse, no racism, no sexism, no murder, no hatred, no name-calling, no verbal attacks, no liars, no accusations, no Satan. He is not allowed there. He's the other place. And that'll be good to be there with those new people having been made new and transformed. The people will be holy and the people will be healthy as well. Listen to the contrast. There's a passage of scripture. It's called the resurrection chapter. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. And in there, it talks about what the resurrection will be like. And just in a couple of verses, it contrasts the new body that we'll have with the current body that we have. And so it says this, it says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And that tells me there's a number of sentences you will never hear in heaven. Let me take a stab at some of them. Man with his shoulder, I just can't throw a football like I used to. (laughs) You will be able to throw a football like you have never thrown it before with your new body. Yeah. How about that? Here's another one. Whoa, you don't look too good. Have you put on weight? (laughs) Not going to happen in heaven. Eat up and be filled, right? How about this one? Man, my sinuses are just killing me. Are these streets made of gold or goldenrod? Har, 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 har. Two things. There will not be allergies in heaven and there will not be bad jokes in heaven. Yeah. It just keeps getting better. You just look exhausted. No, you don't. You will look great. You will never hear the words cancer or Alzheimer's or autism or stroke or heart disease or MS or hearing loss or eyeglasses or AIDS or terminal or Parkinson's or anemia or meningitis or arthritis or addiction. Those words will not be part of the vocabulary in heaven. The old order of things has passed away and I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. In heaven, there's a lot of newness. There's a new start. I probably overuse the Bible verse, Revelation 21.4. It's a great one. And I overuse it without apology. He says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Usually I emphasize the, the intimacy there or the tears being gone. I just want you to hear the word wipe. And I want you to imagine your teacher has a whiteboard and, and your teacher says, here, take this spray and take this, uh, I don't know, what do they use? This cloth. And I want you to wipe that down. And you go up and you do a really good job on it and you wipe it all off. That means it's not readable any longer. If you do it right, it's gone. God will do it right. And he will wipe away the tears. He will wipe away the past mistakes, the past sin, the past pain, the past hurts, the past loss, and there'll be no regret there. You will not be in heaven filled with regret because God will wipe all that away. Do you know where regret is? It's the other place. That will be a place of eternal regret. That will be hell, but not in heaven. No regrets there, because God has made all things new. Now, this next thing I'm going to tell you about heaven, it might kind of bug you a little bit. There'll be judgment in heaven and reward in heaven. I put the verse on the screen because I want you to see it. This is the first one I popped up onto the screen for you, I believe. Listen to what it says. It says, we must all appear, he's writing to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I'm not going to lie. That used to really bother me. You know? That used to really bother me because it even scared me. Like, oh no, I'm going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ for things done in the body, whether good, I'm okay with that, or bad. Wow, I don't think I like that. I want to say it should not be scary, but it should be sobering. Do you understand the difference? It, it should not be scary, but it should be sobering. 
I am not scared to ride my motorcycle. I'll get on it and ride it right now. I am not afraid to do that. But when I get on my motorcycle, you can bet your britches that I take it very seriously. I, I check the tire pressure before I get on. I, I make sure that my turn signals are working as I'm going. I, I watch for all of you that aren't on motorcycles because you're out to get me. I know you are. And I'm very, very sobered by your presence there. And I watch the pavement carefully because have you ever ridden a bicycle on marbles? It's not a pleasant experience. Riding is scary to some people, but it's sobering to me. I'm not afraid, but it's sobering. That's the way I feel about that judgment. I'm not afraid of that judgment. It's not scary, but it is sobering. The verse says that we're going to be judged for things done in the body, whether good or bad. Let me just make real clear here. That's not talking about whether you're going to heaven. The outcome of that judgment isn't, oh, you have to go to hell and you go to heaven. If it was, then our salvation is based on whether we did good things or bad things. And our salvation is based on Jesus Christ and what he did. That's what your salvation is based on. Jesus took your judgment that would have sent you to hell. But as Christians, this is telling me our lives will be reviewed. So live well to make that review pleasant. By the way, how are you going to behave in that moment? I mean, when it's your turn, up to the front here, we're going to review your life. Good and bad. Let's talk about these things. For me, when God speaks to me concerning the good things I've done, I'm going to point to Jesus. I'm going to say, all those good things? It wasn't me. It was Christ in me. It was Jesus who made that happen. It wasn't me. I'm pointing to Jesus when you talk about the good things. And when he begins to talk about the bad things, I'm pointing at you guys. <laughs> no. When he begins to talk about the things that I would be ashamed of, I'm pointing to Jesus. Not because it's his fault, but because he paid for them. When he died on the cross, that is what he died for, to pay for the things for which I am ashamed. Judgment and reward. It's going to take place in heaven. I want to live a life that will make that review a little more pleasant. This may surprise you, but in heaven you're going to work. It's a place of work. Even Eden was. The Garden of Eden, God put man and woman into the Garden of Eden to what it? To work it. To work the garden. But you'll be like that guy. Do you have people in your life that are like this? I love my job. Do you have people in your life like that? Don't you just want to beat them up? Right? (laughs) I love my job, right? That person is really feeling a little bit of heaven on earth because we will love our service because our service will be to our king whom we dearly love. No longer, Revelation 22, 3 says, will there be any curse. So whatever you're assigned to do will not be plagued by the wickedness of the curse that has come in through the wickedness of sin. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And by the way, That's a good thing to be able to serve him in eternity. That's what the parable of the talent tells us in Matthew 25, the parable of the bags of gold. Remember the bags were given, this guy got a couple, this guy got more, and this guy got a whole bunch. This guy did really poorly with his, but this guy and this guy, they did well according to what they were were skilled in doing, and, and that's great. And then he says, give him even more. Give him more responsibility. Because responsibility in the kingdom of God in heaven is not a burden, but a joy and a blessing. And that's going to be yours in heaven. 
By the way, that parable of the talents, parable of the bags of gold, kind of begs the question, well, what should we be doing right now? And the first answer to that question is, make sure you're going. Make sure that you're going. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus, and he says a great sentence. Every sentence Jesus said was great, right? I just particularly love this one, and so do a lot of other people. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Let's think about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it certainly includes heaven. No one can see heaven. No one will see it or even get there unless they're born again. In other words, Jesus is saying something needs to happen in your life that you experience a transformation kind of like being born all over again. It's, it's a reboot of sorts. Actually, it's a whole new operating system that gets installed that comes with an awareness that without Jesus, you're helpless. And when you recognize that without Jesus, without his death on the cross, and you turn from your selfishness and your sin and turn to him and say, I get it. You died for me. That's what I needed. Please forgive me. I want to follow you. I trust that your death paid for my sins. A miraculous transformation occurs in your heart that is akin to being born again. That's why just 13 verses later, after Jesus says we're born again, he tells us how that happens. He says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, think of that as trusts in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that all the world might be saved through him, that all of us would be sure we're going to heaven. And to be sure you're going to heaven, turn from your sin and place your trust in the only one who died for you in Jesus. But there's more than that. What should we do to get ready for this? Well, focus on heavenly treasures. Let me ask you a question. How much time do you intend to spend on earth here in total? 70 years? 80 years? 90 years? Statistics say you're going to make it right in the middle of there, like 79.6 years. That's your average life expectancy in the United States. Afterward, if you're born again, you're headed to heaven. How many years do you anticipate spending in heaven? 70 years? 80 years? Silly question, isn't it? Forever, Pastor Steve. I'm planning to stay in heaven forever. Pastor Steve, I kind of see this earth as a hotel. I'm here for a while, but it's not my home. Uh, My citizenship is in heaven. Okay, let's think about that hotel you're in for a minute. Laurel and I are going to conference this week. We've already got it already. We picked out the wallpaper we're taking down. We're going to wallpaper that hotel room. She's got new drapes for it. And I'm going to take the carpet out because, well, you know, I'm taking the carpet out. And we've got new carpeting for it. That's the most ridiculous thing you'd ever hear of, right? Nobody changes the drapes in their hotel room because they know they're only going to be there for a short time. You get the comparison, right? This world is not your eternal home. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And you want to invest yourself, not in the hotel room, but in the place you will spend eternity. And Jesus speaks to this when he says, don't store out for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. I love the word vermin in the NIV 2011 there, don't you? There's vermin here. 
where moths and vermins destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermins do not destroy. Vermin, not vermins. I said vermins. They don't, they're not even there. And thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. Make sure you're going. Focus on heavenly treasures, but there's more. Identify within yourself your God-given desire for heaven. Well, that is just about as awkwardly worded as I can imagine, Pastor Steve. Yep, that's because I can't think of a better way to say it. Identify within yourself your God-given desire for heaven. Do you desire heaven above all else? Maybe not. Then let me tweak your thinking just a wee little bit. Have you ever been outside on a summer's evening, alone in night air, it's a beautiful evening, it's a clear evening, you're not in town, so there's no artificial light around, and you look up and you can just see the sky, it's so beautiful and so radiant. You ever been there? You're alone. There you are. Just you, and the night air, and the sky. And you feel this kind of cosmic longing. You feel this kind of, what is that? That feels so cool. Why, what is that? I think it's a longing for transcendence. That you want something beyond this old heaven and old earth. I think it's a longing for heaven. I think it's a longing for God. Have you ever been with good friends sitting around a campfire in the evening? And you're enjoying the warmth of the fire. You're enjoying the warmth of the friendship. And then just as you're sitting there, everything kind of fades out. And you don't even notice your friends around so much. You're, you've just been kind of transfixed by the fire. And you feel a sense of warmth that isn't coming from the fire. And it's not coming from your friends. It's, it's coming from somewhere else. Could that be a sense of transcendence? Something beyond this earth? An awareness of eternity or even heaven? A sense of God? Have you ever listened to music maybe something that isn't even Christian, and it moved you deeply. For example, in the Super Bowl that followed 9-11, U2 sang. Do you remember that halftime show? I can't remember what song he was singing. But as U2 singing it, they're scrolling the names of the people who've been lost in that attack. And did you feel it? Were you sitting there eating the Doritos? And you just sensed it? It wasn't a Super Bowl halftime show anymore. There was something amazing there. It was a transcendent moment. Do you think maybe that was your desire for heaven or your desire for God? Your hunger for transcendence will never be fulfilled at a concert. It will never be fulfilled at a campfire or a night under the stars. Your hunger for transcendence will only be fulfilled in God and it will be completely realized in heaven. That's what the Bible is talking about when it says words like these. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we're clothed, we're not found naked. And while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Identify that God-given desire you have for heaven. It's within yourself. There's more. Stay strong. 
We had Bible quizzers at our church yesterday, a whole bunch of them, right? We have four teams in our church. Quizzers did well. I want to tell you a story of one of them, and I'll leave him nameless because I don't have his permission to tell this, but I'm going to tell the story of him. If you've never been to Bible quizzing, you might not understand this. In Bible quizzing, you don't have to have it right. You have to have it exact. And so here's these little kids, you know, and, and, and the thing is, um, in, recite Genesis 1-1, you know, and they go, in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. <clears throat> Try again. In the beginning, God made. <clears throat> Try again. Because it's created. It's not made, you know. But hey, it's the same word, right? Nope. You missed it. You have to sit out. It just happens. It's part of quizzing. It's a good part of quizzing. It's how you learn to get it right. Well, <laughs> one of our kids wasn't getting it right. And he didn't get it right the next time. And I'm looking at this. You know how you can look at a person's mouth and you can see he's going to cry. He didn't until the quiz was over. And then he cried. And I wanted to hug him and tell him about Brennan. Brennan used to get bloody noses when he quizzed. That's how intense he was. <laughs> right? And so I brought him over. I said, hey, buddy, let me tell you about Brennan. And he just cried into my shoulder. He's just blubbering. I'm like, I'm not going to help this kid. All I can do is hold him and let him cry. And then he went out. He was with his mom a little bit, and he went into the next quiz. And let me tell you what he did. He quizzed out without error. Here's what that means. I told you a moment ago. He answered so many questions that the quiz master said, quit answering, sit down, let somebody else answer. That's what it means to quiz out without error. And I took him aside and I said, listen, buddy, I am proud of you for getting those questions right, but I am even prouder of you. I am even more proud of you because you stuck it out and you tried again and you would not be defeated. You stayed strong. (laughs) Staying strong. That's a question that all children need to learn. It prepares them for life. Staying strong is something you and I need to practice. It prepares us for heaven. The Bible talks about it when it says, therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We stay strong. We persevere. Now, the Christian and Missionary Alliance doctrinal statement speaks about looking to eternity with just brief words. It says, there shall be a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the former a resurrection to life, and the latter a resurrection unto just judgment. I could have just read you that, and we could have been out of here immediately. But wasn't it worth looking at what heaven is like? 